There's a red ghetto spilling black blood over cracked concrete. Chasing superfly dreams upstream, syrupy sweet. Forever giving their souls to the penitentiary for keeps. Seeking liberation from an oppressive social matrix where there is no fair trial because the judge is racist. It's hell here and heaven's only glances, marijuana plants, food stamps, and welfare. My observations, I see the black population plagued by miseducation, parole and probation, economic stagnation, too many facing incarceration. Politicians are filthy pheasants laughing and laughing while our seeds return to the essence. During a recession, some seek Smith and Wessons, others digest the jewels and lessons upholding the star and crescent. In a world of corruption, government increased jail construction for social malfunctions and schools lack proper instructions. Is it politics or politics when 85% chasing kicks, chains, and whips, blacks killing blacks in the name of blood and crip? In this modern genocide, life and death are synthesized images, criminalized, I'm victimized by legitimized police homicide. Even if I tried, I doubt I'd have survived the 41 shots the night Amadou Diallo died. But the whole story's never told when my freedom stole caught in the folds of a Rikers Island hold. Flashbacks. Flashbacks. Flashbacks to the drug soul chasing diamonds and gold. I behold through every hood I stroll. Shorty's lost in the cold, just a puppet of subtle mind control, acing out on his very first roll. But the tables turn when the young teach the old. Revelations, Revelation scroll. Wow. What you've just heard is the voice of. Damien Coppage, reading his own words. Thank you. How did you become a poet? Where did this come from? Well, I've always had a fascination with words. Um, when I was a small child in school, I was reading beyond the grade that I was in and um, I used to take my aunt's books and I would just take them late at night downstairs in the living room. Even before I really knew how to read, I would just look at the words. I thought it was fascinating to see, you know, print on a page just looked so orderly to me. And then when I finally realized that those words had meaning, I began to look them up like in the dictionary. And um, after a while, I, elementary school, I did a play, Langston Hughes, Mother to Son. And that was like, one of my very first introductions into the power of poetry, and I started to look into it from there. Well, what you do in that piece you just read us is really powerful because you express a lot of rage, but you do it in a way that with the rhythm and the repeating rhymes becomes art. So you've made art out of something is really kind of horrible. Um, if you could just kind of talk about that process, you know, how you take rage and rather than, say, punching somebody in the face with a fist, you pick up a pen and, and make it 
a poem. Well, there's a little backstory to that poem, so let me just take you back a little bit. Um, I wrote that poem while I was um, incarcerated in Sing Sing Correction Facility um, between the years of 2002 and 2005. I think maybe that was written maybe 2003 or 2005, and I was um, I was just caged in a cell, and one night on WBAI, some poets came on the radio, um, and I think they were called either the Spitfire Poets or something like that. And I heard it, and it was amazing to me. And I started to, like, call other people down the gallery and tell them, hey, listen, man, turn on WBI. They have some real interesting poetry on. And I just, I was sort of transfixed by how, you know, out of being in a cell and, you know, pretty much people thinking that I should be down and sad and, you know, nobody wants to be in a cell. But when I heard these poetry, it it just moved me. And then within that movement, I just picked my pen up and my paper and I just started to try and create, you know, along the themes of what I was feeling at that time. And, you know, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a do the at that time around that area of time frame. I'm not sure if I'm, I may be on or off with you know, the time, but it was still resonating what had happened to him. And then being in prison and having, you know, a lot of abuse of authority and violence going on, it just, kind of compel my pen to move forward and you know i'm a strong believer that you know creation comes you know in times when you least expect it it can't be forced so you know being in that circumstance being in that situation um i felt compelled to create and i think you know that's just what i did and i'm blessed that you know people have you know enjoyed it and looked into it as they have yeah, well, I should let our listeners know the reason I was able to make this podcast with Damien Coppage is through the late Peter Henner. And um, our longtime readers remember he was a Clarksville lawyer and an activist and also did our chess column. And he had written about Damien because the two of them played a game of chess through the mail while Damien was in prison. And Peter Henner considered him a brilliant player. Um, he went by the, or you still do go by the name of Focus, is that right? Yes. Focus. How did that, yes, how did that name come up, the name Focus? <laughs> well, that, that's another interesting story. So um, in prison, you have like, recreation time and you know some prisoners go out some prisoners you know they choose to stay back in their cell well i have been bitten by the chess bug ever since i was eight years old um my father taught me how to play the game and i've been studying books like since the age of 14 up until now i'm 43 um i also i play at a club in manhattan called the forum shout out to the forum um if anybody wants to come play chess there they can look me up um but the name came about when I was outside in the rain and I'm playing chess and some guys like this, they were trying to call me and get my attention. And I was so transfixed in the position at the board. They just said that I was acting like I didn't hear them and you were ignoring us. You're just so focused on the game. You don't hear anything, you know, around you. And just started to call me focused when they saw me outside playing chess. And, you know, it started to stick. And, you know, I actually made an acronym out of the name and it stands. So follow one course until successful. So, you know, I just let the let the name stick with me. And it's also like a reminder when someone calls me that 
to pay attention. Oh, that's a wonderful story. And I, I'm just, um, impressed with the world of chess, which I know nothing about. But I went online to try to find out a little about you. And I came across this book by Tim Crothers that was made into a movie by Disney, The Queen of Catwa. Mm-hmm. And you appear in that book. Um, just for people that don't know the story, um, there was a young girl, she was nine at the time, in Uganda, um, Fiona, how do you say her last name? Mutesi? Uh, it's Fiona Mutesi. Fiona Mutesi. Mutesi. And um, the two of you corresponded um, by mail, and I in the book is a letter that you wrote to her, and I'm just going to read from some of that um, because I think it's just so telling to transcend worlds. Um, here you are in prison in the United States, and she's in her own kind of prison, really, poverty, a prison of mm-hmm. poverty in Uganda, in the slums. And yes. um, the author of the book writes in setting up this letter in the book, um, Cotter writes that Coppage had sent Fiona three chess books, a check for $25 that prompted her coach um, to open Fiona's very first bank account. And she went on to become an internationally known chess champion. But here is this letter that you wrote her that is in the book. Um, Dear Fiona, I write to you happy to hear from you and your coach. I thought I would never get a letter back, and when I did, I smiled with excitement. Your letter was the very first one I received from my original home. I write to you and Robert, that's the coach, Robert Katande, I think you say his name. I write to you and Robert Mm -hmm. not only as a fellow student of chess, but also a brother in a distant land. Captured long ago were my ancestors, and as I descend from them, I'm delighted to reconnect with you as a friend and brother. I thank you for agreeing to play with me. I absolutely love everything about chess. I have a small library of chess books in my cell along with two chess sets made of plastic. My father taught me to play when I was eight years old. I've been hooked since. I'm 34, so we know you wrote this nine years ago, and I don't have much competition here Uh in this prison. Don't worry about me defeating you. I read that you make everybody's pieces retreat until there's nothing for them to do but resign. I have six and a half years to come out of this place. I've been here since 1997. When I was younger, I was living without good in my life, and I killed my best friend by playing with a loaded handgun, which went off and hit him and took his life. Every day, I wish I could bring him back. And I... It's just such powerful writing that you have, um, so simple and so direct. And if you could just tell us a little about writing that letter to Fiona and what your long-distance relationship was like with her. Well, first of all, that letter was um, the, the beginning of a process of me trying to get my mind out of prison because I was being confined to a cell at a time when, you know, I think it was some sort of punitive segregation. And I came across ESPN magazine and I saw a little shanty metal shack and I saw that there was a sports recreation center in Lynchburg, Virginia that was helping children um, get into soccer. And then 
Fiona Mutesi, who was a chess player, they had sponsored her, and I decided, you know, let me just write this, you know, this address inside the ESPN magazine. I never thought I would get a response back. So six months later, I get a response, and I begin to um, start a game, which we actually never finished, um, through the mail. So the letter um, to her was actually initiated by her question to me about how does one remain um, a champion, you know, when they're trying to pursue greatness. And I tried to explain to her that, you know, um, there's other parts of the letter that I was trying to explain that if you follow a course of studying the errors of other people um, in, in relationship to chess and maybe, you know, other ways that it could help you pursue, you know, your own championship status, you know, your own greatness. And I was trying to explain that to her um, inside of that letter, along with being grateful that I was able to even be able to correspond with somebody so far away from where I was at the time who was actually interested in what I was doing. And another thing that had also t- taken me back was how, you know, when I read the magazine article on ESPN, it was very difficult for Fiona to even find, like, clean water, food, and, you know, things like that. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm amazed how... How is it that you can hardly find, you know, sustenance to survive, but you're able to play chess at, you know, a level that brings this type of attention to you? When most people, you know, they, they, they can't even find, you know, time to learn how to play the game, much less play it well. So that kind of drew me, you know, into reaching out to her because I was so curious, like, how is this even possible? Like, I've never heard of anything like this. And, um... So that, that that was like the, the you know like the, the the catalyst you know that drew me into to trying to connect with with Fiona. Just fascinating, and what you told her about what landed you in jail. Um, it was it was just very moving. Uh, thinking every day, wishing you could bring your friend back. Have have you been able to make? peace with yourself over that over these years that you spent spent in prison well i think i've come to accept that i can't change it and you know i'm always remorseful sorry for what happened and um as a part of you know my re-entry and my change of you know lifestyle i've come to do much more positive things i've recently been offered an opportunity to teach chess as a volunteer to um, people who have like um, some sort of like disabilities with concentration and you know memory and maiden lane somewhere like I think it's in Manhattan I have to go to an interview on Monday or Tuesday and um so doing these things I'll try to help humanity as a whole you know see that I'm not the same person I'm a better person and you know, I would like to you know, use chess to try to bring out the better, you know, the betterment of other people. Yeah, you had mentioned to me earlier one of the things you do when you teach others is you said um, you have like an anecdotal way of doing it, and you can compare chess. I don't know, is it moves? I don't play chess to basketball or mechanics. Just <laughs> tell us a little about how you make it accessible to people, or what your teaching style is with chess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's interesting because I actually had some some um I think some sophomore students from Hunter College come down to uh, the forum and they didn't know anything about chess. They wanted to know 
you know, what is it like? How do I play? And what is the strategy? What's the best piece? And, you know, a lot of people come to this game with their own preconceived ideas and their own preconceived notions. And I like to think of it as, um, like you said, like a basketball game. So if you have two teams and one team is, let's say, a run and gun team, they like to run and shoot. And then you have another team that is very strong at defense. So you have two different styles, right? And the outcome is going to be determined by the person who's able to take their style and trump the other person's style. It doesn't mean that one is better than the other. It's just the advantage of difference, how you take those imbalances and make them, you know, in your favor. And in chess, it's the same thing. So you start the game off with 32 pieces. You have eight pawns, two knights, two bishops, two rooks, a king, and a queen. The other person on the other side, of you, excuse me, has the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. So if you start off with even material, then something has to change and shift in the process of interaction between those two people for one to become victorious. And what those things are are the same imbalances that you find in, like, in a basketball game. Someone's faster, someone shoots the ball quicker, um, someone is paying more attention to defense, or someone has a little bit of uh, a skill level that's more higher than the opponent so they're able to use something that the other person isn't. Or in chess is like pattern recognition, you know, and most of the games that I play on the clock, so that brings another element of psychological pressure into it. So a person may say, you know what, if I play fast, even though this other person doesn't have to play fast, they may mimic me, and that mimicry will cause them to make a mistake. So, you know, it's experience, it's psychology, there's, things in it that, you know, cross, you know, there's interdisciplinary aspects of chess that most of the time go unnoticed. Yeah, it's a game that has intimidated me just watching people play it. Um, an <laughs> another thing that just seems fascinating about you is your religion. And I found online um, on a site called Beginning Mind devoted um, to Buddhism um, for people that are in prison. And you had written an essay there as well. And I'd just like to read an excerpt of that and then hope that you can talk to us a bit about you know, how you found your religion in prison and, and what it's meant to you. Um, you wrote, ever since I was a small child, I've put energy into asking questions. I wanted to know what made things work. And if you gave me a toy, I wanted to know how it functioned. My inquisitive adult mind wondered about the workings of human beings interacting with each other and the environment. The initial catalyst which compelled me to Zen practice and the Dharma was somewhat of an accident. And I'm hoping you can just tell us a little about that accident and how it unfolded. <laughs> and I'll just read your ending thought in this essay, too, so people have this in mind as you're talking. Um, it's the state of becoming aware in each moment that I equate with the meaning of beginning mind. The point of not resting or accepting a limit on anyone's capability to master the boundless Dharma. So tell us about that accident that happened that, that led you into Buddhism. Well, let me let me see if I can re recap. So well, I was again I was in Sing Sing and um a guy had walked past my living quarters and he said, yo, you know, I think you, you would be interested in coming down to, you know, Buddhist services and, you know, seeing how it is. So I'm like, the first thing I'm thinking of when I hear Buddhism is, 
I'm thinking about, you know, Channel 5, martial arts, uh, masters, ball heads and robes. And I'm like, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I pass. But then something just, I don't know how these things occur. Something just, you know, got me curious. And he said it again. He said, you know, I think you would like to come down. In, in a sense, because I never intended to go anywhere, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself religious, and I thought Buddhism was more like a religion, but it's pretty much a philosophy of life, even though people call it that. So I go down, and um, it's just utterly quiet. People are sitting there, quiet, doing meditation, breathing, and then I started to notice that my senses, I started to actually notice my senses, like I'm hearing people's clothing um move i can hear breathing i can hear i can hear um you know things that i normally wouldn't be able to pay attention to when i'm distracted in my you know day-to-day everyday activities and that made me wonder like if i'm missing out on these things with my senses what else could i be missing out on and that kind of like drew me into wanting to like delve more into the experience of human awareness like you know things that we think we're aware of and not you know or things that we pay attention to and what don't we pay attention to and why and so um i began to practice doing meditation you know after that period first off and on and then now more consistently um i actually go to fire lotus temple in brooklyn I try to be there on Sundays, like every Sunday now, because I moved to the Bronx, so it's kind of difficult for me. But that's where I pretty much do um, my Zen training within a group of other Buddhist um, participants and practitioners. So that's like pretty much, you know, speaks to how it was like an accident, but it was like a pretty good accident, I would call it. Yeah, it sounds like you're able to you know, take advantage of a moment and turn it into to something else. Living in a cell and finding all these ways to reach outside of it, whether you're writing to Fiona or playing chess with Peter Henner or doing Buddhism where you can sort of get out of your confined physical space into like a larger mental space. I just wonder because there have been so many studies. You were for quite a while in what they call SHU, special housing units, right? Where it's almost like solitary confinement. And so many prisoners, Mm -hmm. when they get out, um, they have severe mental health problems. If you could just kind of talk to us a little about how you coped with that, how you managed not just to stay sane, but to sort of expand your world, even though you were so physically confined? Well, that one is, that 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 is a heavy, heavy question, and it's like a heavy um, um, load to even contemplate. I can't speak on it from an expert's position, but I can tell you that when I was in solitary confinement, um, I realized immediately that this was designed to try and break a person down. And when I mean say breaking down, I mean in subtle ways and in overt ways also. I mean, you have various things going on in there from correction officers not giving people their food because they have 
some personal problem where maybe the person is talking too loud. They don't like the way they look. They don't like the way they smell. So they'll walk by you and they won't feed you. And, you know, then there's yelling and screaming. There's people that, you know, just don't have the um, desire to see another human being grow beyond suffering. So I noticed that. Um, and then I just said, I don't want to be broken down. Like, so what is it that I can do that is the opposite of what is trying to be done to me? And then I noticed that, you know, the things that weren't present around me, like, um, you know, there weren't positive people who wanted to play chess, but there were a few. Um, there weren't always people who wanted to read and discuss things, but there were a few. So what I did was I took those few and I tried, you know, when there were moments of silence and quiet, I would communicate with them and I would maybe play chess with them because you could play chess there using a number system or you would have to yell. Sometimes people would actually be quiet to hear the games because they would want to follow them in their things and they really pick the boards out of the game. So you would get an opportunity to play a chess game maybe in quiet because individuals wanted to follow it. And that would give me some respite from the chaos that may ensue if I didn't do that. And I just sat there and just, you know, looked at my situation pitiful and said, you know what, um, this is not going to work. They had me here. I'm breaking down. And I fought. I mean, that's the key to it. I mean, I struggled against the odds to not be drove, you know, to driven insane, you know, because if you don't, I mean, there's, there's like no standstill. You can't be in the middle. You're either going to disintegrate right or we're going to redefine yourself in the presence of things that are trying to destroy you and that's what i think you know i kind of kind of tried to do the best way that i could and buddhism helped me do that tremendously you know one of the principles that buddhism teaches is that form is emptiness or in another you know layman's terms to put it is that nothing has any inherent quality to it so it's pretty much your perspective and how you view it determines how you react to it, how you behave in relationship to your circumstances, because you can look at them from so many different angles. And I tried to use the angle that was best suited, you know, to keep me strong. Wow. Um, you're just, uh, your, your words are so uh, simple and powerful. Um, so how how long were you in prison altogether? I entered the Department of Corrections in 1998, but I was arrested in 1997. Um, so altogether, um, I was just released July 31st of this year. Altogether, 22 years of um, incarceration. So, so how how has it been going since you were released this summer? How what what has that transition been like for you? You know, it's funny that you mentioned this because I'm actually in a, a classroom at the Fortune Society, and today is the last day of my internship. So, I mean, I didn't lose my job by getting fired, but but I did lose my job because they no longer need me anymore in terms of. The intern. I mean, that was known from the inception, but I just didn't, you know, it was, I didn't know today was the last day. So um, now I'm pretty much looking for work. <laughs> so, and I'm living in a shelter and I'm trying to make the best out of, you know, what I can, you know, with what I have. You know, mm. my autonomy is very important to me because it allows me to pursue my sin. 
because I don't want to be tied down to a whole lot of, you know, uh, allegations that have nothing to do with growth and development. So I try and do things. I even, you know, I go to a library periodically. Um, I surround myself with, you know, positive people. I look at the things that help people that are, you know, re- recently um, um, re-entering society from incarceration to, you know, move forward with their lives. And that's like a pretty much, that's a job in itself. You know, I have various meetings with vested, um, you know, and so, so on and so forth, looking into things like that. So um, this internship that just ended today, what was what what did you do with that? What was that about? Well, Fortune Society is a place that tries to provide people that are coming home with employment and job training. It's a very excellent program. However, they can't keep everybody, you know, doing jobs forever because they have to make room for other people. So they provide various things like, you know, receptionists at the desk, maintenance, um, food service upstairs. Um, if you're into any uh, uh, IT stuff, they can pretty much try and find your position there, but they're interns, which means it's seven to two weeks. And if they decide to keep you, they can, but it's very unlikely that they will because they have their own staff here, so they have room for interns. Hmm. What I was doing was maintenance, um, which, you know, just requires certain skills, like, you know, you have to restack the bathroom with, like, you know, toilet supplies, mop, sweep, clean, try and keep the place orderly, and um, disinfect, vacuum, you know, take garbage out, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But um, that that was something that was pretty much like trying to, keep, you know, actually helping me keep money in my pocket so that I could be able to, you know, function on the day-to-day throughout society as I moved around. So now... Um, with that, you know, there's another challenge. So I'm looking for employment. <laughs> so, right what kind of employment would you like to get if you if you could get, you know, an ideal job for you? What what would it be? Well, I like talking to people. As I brush, you can probably tell. But mm-hmm. um, I would love to have an opportunity to interact with people in relationship to chess, which is what I love. Um, and I also would like, I, I do photography, as you know, I take pictures with my phone. I'm not a master at that, but I've been, I have some pictures of like buildings that I've done. Yeah, um, I like I the perspective music. of the the picture you sent me. You must have squatted down way low <laughs> and it was a huge, tall skyscraper with a blue sky above it. But it was just, your eye yeah. went right up that building. Yeah. And you also do art. You yeah, sent me some abstract art that you do. What, tell us about that. What, what? What led you to do that? Very, very vibrant you know, colors. Yeah, you know, I learned a little bit about color theory when I was in Fishkill in a program called uh, Rehabilitation Through the Arts. Um, uh, I think it's run by Catherine Watkins, if I'm not mistaken. So um, along with that little bit of, you know, information that they gave me, I began to realize that my phone actually has a place where you can get colors and, you know, like little markers and pencils. And I just... Most people think I did the stuff that I showed you with some sort of paintbrush, but when I tell them that it's a digital medium and I actually did it with my fingers, just my thumb moving across the screen and changing different angles and stuff like that, they like they kind of like almost don't believe it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so, <that's... laughs> so, I mean, it's just like, again, like I say, it's something that um, for me anyway, I don't know about other people, for me it happens in a way that's almost very difficult to explain rationally. It's like I have a feeling, I go to a color, and then I just 
you know, I try and do what the feeling drives me to do with that color on a canvas. And it's not something that is like, oh, this is a cow or this is a building or this is a face. It's more like, you know, this is what I feel with this color. This is how my finger moves through this feeling with this color. And this is what happens. And, you know, that's the results. So, but it gives me a feeling of connectedness to a medium outside of myself. Like I'm creating something. I've worked with pastels before. And um, it's like, a, almost like meditation. It feels like, you know, just you want to create. So it really doesn't matter if you know, another person says, well, this doesn't look like a painting from Picasso. This is not, well, okay, then get a Picasso painting. But <laughs> I like what I'm doing because, it, you know, it makes me feel connected to something, you know? So that's how I kind of like got into that, 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 um, that medium. Yeah. Well, Damien, this has been really great talking to you. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Um, to, you know, close out our podcast? So I would like to tell anybody out there that's listening, if you have a desire, you know, to do something and you feel like, you know, it's really compelling you and there's something positive and you feel like you can help other people and you can't find a way to get people to see your vision, just do it. And then eventually someone else will come along and they'll say, wow, that's really amazing. And you never know what could happen from there. I like your advice. I think it's good for anyone. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. 